And I want to encourage you to uh, be meditating on that, that children's message that Tracy just shared as we think through how do we, as God's children, share and live out the reality of the blessings that God has given to each one of us. So we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 21, as we close to the, serv- the series, uh, I should say, the series that we've entitled Sojourn, A Study of the Life of Abraham. Now, Abraham <clears throat> took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Leumimim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. There was Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kader, and Abdil, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jader, Naphish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is, in the op- which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. You know, as we have been going through this series, studying the life of Abraham, one of our primary objectives has been to challenge us to think about how do we, here in the 21st century, live as children of Abraham, children of faith in a world that is rejecting faith as an operating principle for life, right? We do that which is pragmatic, that which is convenient, that which fulfills our desires, but not be ruled by faith. In fact, many people think of faith as something you do that that is a convenient comfort to you, but it is not a rule for living. And I hope you've seen, as we've studied through the life of Abraham, the driving force, the overarching rule of life is his faith in God. Now, last week, we saw how as God fulfills his promises... That we, we have this, this fulfillment happening in and through us. And so we're called to participate in the fulfillment of God's promises in this world. And that we're called to do that by acting in faith like Abraham, right? And that we're to obey like Abraham's servant did. 
And we saw how we're to, in fact, receive the workings of God in this world, like Rebecca. And we're to see, we saw how all of life is about trusting in God's redemptive grace and work. And today, we're going to see that everyone has a legacy. As we come to, to end this series and we come to the end of Abraham's life, we're going to see that every one of us has a legacy and that we can only give what we actually truly have. We're also going to see that our legacy is our choice and our responsibility. And then finally, we're going to see that only God can ensure a godly legacy. So these will be our four main themes that we'll be drawing out of today's text. Everyone has a legacy. You can only give what is truly yours. Your legacy is your choice and your responsibility, and only God can ensure a godly legacy. Let's talk about this idea that everyone has a legacy. Some of us will die with bank accounts close to zero. <laughs> Uh, maybe, I, I, t I like to tease my kids, uh, congratulations, you will inherit all of our debt, you know? Um, and and, and it, obviously I'm joking, but, but the reality is that some of us will pass on uh, significant financial resources to our children, our grandchildren, or to institutions that, that we feel are worthy of investing in. But what if I told you every one of us Every one of us has a legacy. And, and th this is an inevitable reality of living. And it doesn't matter whether you've lived nine years or 90 years. You have a legacy that you are going to leave behind. Now, that means <laughs> we're all going to die, okay? Uh, a legacy doesn't come into effect. An inheritance doesn't come into effect until there's been a death, right? You could create living trusts, which are a form of legacy here and now using a mechanism, but, but they're presupposed on the idea that you're going to die, that we don't last, right? And this is a scriptural principle for all of life. We understand as believers, we don't deny the reality of death. Christians don't hide themselves from this fact. Over and over again, you can see the lives of great people in Scripture, Abraham and Ishmael, in the text we just read. They breathe their last and they die, right? Okay, if every one of us is going to die, then there will probably be a funeral and hopefully somebody will be mourning. You know, uh, to keep us preachers humble, when I was a younger pastor, an older pastor told me, he said, just remember this. Someday, no matter how great your sermons are, how great your church is, or everything else, you're going to die, and there will be a funeral service of some type, and people are going to say nice things about you, hopefully, and then they're going to throw dirt on your face and go home and eat pie. All right? I, I, I know that, that we don't like to think of it that way, Right? But, but we may be mourned. Uh, we, you know, we'll have a, a, some kind of funeral service. Abraham did. You know, uh, his family takes him and buries him where they had buried Sarah. And there was a time of mourning for Ishmael and Isaac who buried Abraham there. And so if we die, there'll probably be a funeral. There'll be some mourning. But whatever we have, whatever we've accumulated... And that could be financial accumulation or material accumulation. It could be money or fixed assets, homes, etc. Whatever we've accumulated or whatever we have valued and treasured in our own lives, whether that's material or financial. So it could be experiences or our spirituality or our faith. Everything we've accumulated or valued will be left behind. He who dies with the most toys still dies. And you can't take any of it with you. And when I was a child, across the street from me in the country of Indonesia, for all of my growing up, was a Buddhist temple. And as part of the expression of this division of Buddhism and the belief in reincarnation, there was a massive... Uh, 
altar chimney there. And it was a regular part of my childhood experience to see people bring elaborate paper items, elaborate paper cars, paper houses, paper uh, dolls, uh, paper money, stacks of paper money. And they would hold a ritual and then they would light all of those things on fire. And those things were supposed to go to people in their next life. All it did was drift ash into my yard. But that was their belief, right? Because there's this idea that we are longing for as human beings. It's easy to make fun of, of something that seems so strange to us as a religious belief. But let me assure you that there are countless people who fundamentally believe that what they own and possess or what they are experiencing and what they're valuing matters now and that they will somehow defeat the reality of death and be able in some capacity or way to take it with them. Now, Scripture, of course, reminds us that's foolish, right? <laughs> Even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Whatever we've accumulated in this world, we have to leave behind. Now, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes mourns this fact because he said, I could be so wise, I could build great cities, I can accumulate great fortunes, I can build beautiful parks, and I have to leave it all behind to somebody who's probably going to mess it up. Right? But what if God's intention even in a world where death is real, where funerals are a reality and where we can't take things with us, what if, in fact, part of our faith is for us to bless others with that which we have been blessed? What if, in fact, that's God's expectation for a people of faith? What if we're only actually temporary stewards of anything, and we're intended to be a blessing to other people. The scripture verse the children just sang and that Tracy had them uh, recite to us is this, Genesis 12, 2. We saw this at the very beginning of our study of the life of Abraham. God makes this promise of, to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you can be super awesome and remembered forever and everybody's going to love Abraham and you get to keep all your stuff. No. From the beginning, God made it clear, Abraham, I'm going to bless your life so that you will be a blessing to other people, so that you will leave behind a legacy. Now, Abraham, we, we're going to see here, was, was very wealthy. And he left behind a vast fortune. But here's the question that all of us need to ask, whether we have a bunch of stuff or a lot of money in our bank accounts, what will our legacy be? What will people inherit from you? What will your children, grandchildren, your spiritual offspring, your friends your church, what will they inherit from you? When you are gone, what will people say your legacy was? Proverbs says this, that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Essentially, this is going beyond just speaking of material provision. And if God has so blessed you, then I encourage you, certainly. Take their financial resources and bless your children and your grandchildren. Leave resources to spiritual offspring. Uh, there are wonderful ways to do that by investing in Christian universities or leaving uh, money to the International Mission Board. There's all kinds of ways to do this. But I think this is a bigger principle than just money. In fact, I think if we concentrate on money, we miss out on the point. Because a wise person is thinking about the legacy that they are going to leave, not just simply to their children, 
but to their grandchildren. And the foolish and sinful person is spending their whole life trying to accumulate things, not thinking about some other generation. And everything they accumulate that's of any value that can be redeemed is just simply going to be transferred by God to other people. So what will your legacy be? What will you leave behind? What will you leave behind spiritually? What will you be known for? What teachings and words, what memories will people have of the things you've said or done? All of those things are part of your legacy. Everyone has a legacy, but we can only give what is truly ours, right? I can write a will, and I could say to my uh, into in, an attorney somewhere and say, when I die, I want you to transfer $2 billion of Elon Musk money to my children. It would have no effect because I don't have any authority over Elon Musk's money, right? I can only give what is actually mine, which requires us as believers to recognize this reality. Everything that we have is a temporary gift for us to steward in this world. Scripture is so clear about that. Now, Abraham had a lot of money. We already saw this, Genesis 24, right? Uh, uh, there's another passage of Scripture that says, Abraham was very rich. Here, Abraham's servant describes him and says, the Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great, as God promised Abraham, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. Abraham had become radically wealthy, but he didn't do it because he had his own power and ability to create wealth. In fact, Scripture reminds us that all of us have this principle at play in our life, that there's nothing that we have that we have not received. I know that goes vastly against the American mentality. We've earned it. And you guys have heard me say this so many times before. Congratulations. If you were born on a trash heap in Mumbai, you would never have had the chance to earn any of it. The education, the environment, and the experiences that you've been in were gifts you did not choose. If you were born a thousand years ago as a slave child... In the Middle East, you would have earned nothing. You chose none of that. What do you have that you have not received from God? Scripture reminds us that God alone even gives the power to create wealth. Everything that we have is a gift of God. Now, this is true not just materially or financially. It's true spiritually as well, we receive not only material blessings, but also spiritual blessings and promises because the greatest thing that God did for Abraham was not make him rich. That's not the thing that God did as the greatest blessing. Now, Abraham did become rich, but God gave Abraham spiritual blessing, right? If all God did was make Abraham rich and did not call Abraham to be his friend, then Abraham's life would just be another person on a long list of wealthy people whose names would be forgotten and whose legacies would be nothing but materialism and destruction of other people. God's greatest blessing to Abraham was a faith relationship. And God called Abraham out, according to the author of Hebrews, and called him into this life of faith. And Abraham obeyed to go to a place where he was to receive an inheritance, an inheritance that's going to go on to say in Hebrews that he did not actually get. You say, but Abraham became very wealthy because the inheritance that he got was not ultimately his wealth. We receive material blessings, but also spiritual blessings and promises. Now, that means we can pass on that which we have been given. Abraham could pass on his wealth, and we can pass on our material wealth, and I encourage you to do that in a way that's wise and godly. But you can also pass on so much more. 
we can pass on that which we have been given. If you read the next verse in Hebrews 11, 9, it says this, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Did you catch that? Isaac became an heir of the promise that God had made to Abraham. Not just his financial wealth. Jacob, Isaac's, one of Isaac's two sons, would inherit not a dime of his father's wealth, by the way. He had to go earn all of that himself, because remember there's a whole conflict with his brother? But he inherits the promise of God. He inherits a spiritual blessing. Isaac inherits it from Abraham, and he passes on this spiritual blessing to, uh, or, uh, to Jacob. Jacob inherits that same spiritual blessing. If you keep reading throughout Scripture, and I think we put a bunch of these in your notes, you'll see that Jacob blesses his children with that same spiritual blessing and promise. Over and over again, the generations of the children of Israel would come back and say, we've received a blessing from God, and we pass it on to the next generation. What does that mean for you and me? If we're going to give Jesus to our children and our grandchildren, to the next generation of churches, we better make sure that we actually have the authentic blessing of God. Or we will pass on a legacy of Pharisaism or Sadduceeism of legalism and pride or libertinism. See, the only Jesus your children are really ever going to count or the children of this church or the children of this community are ever going to count is the Jesus you display to them. I want you to realize that every church functions like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are temporary stewards of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the option to pass that on, that faith on. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, there's a tie-in specifically to what we've just been talking about. In Jesus, we have obtained what? An inheritance, that's you, me. We've obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who's God, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God, from eternity past, chose to give you the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring that to bear fruit in your life because He has destined you to be His child. Now the question is whether or not you will pass on on that good news, whether you will steward that faith into a next generation or not. Or you'll just think it's something that should just somehow automatically happen. Can I remind you that none of us was entitled to this inheritance? Have you ever seen spoiled rich people that think they're entitled to something? I've certainly seen lower level conflicts happen in families where one child doesn't get something they thought they should inherit from their parents. The children squabble over the things that the parents had, which I, you know, I, I, I have a standing rule in my family whenever my parents try to talk to me about, you know, the, the, their will and their, you know, I have to do the work with them on, on those kinds of things and stuff. You know, my sister is, is so kind and so generous. She wants to make sure that everything's fairly distributed, which I so appreciate. But I always tell her, I'm like, take what you want. I have no intention of trying to fight over any kind of material possessions of my parents. Right? I know this. I'm not actually entitled to any of it. I may bear my parents' blood, but I'm not actually entitled to their stuff. And we're not entitled to God's grace. 
none of us is entitled to God's grace. In fact, Scripture says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the problem with that sentence for every one of us is this, the unrighteous is you and me. There's not one single person, not one single person that can say, I've been righteous enough to inherit the kingdom of God. Except Jesus. See, God sent His perfect Son to redeem us and to make us into His children. We weren't entitled to the spiritual inheritance and the legacy of faith that Abraham has. We don't deserve to have this, right? But God sent His Son in order to buy us out of our unrighteousness and to make us into His children. In fact, in Galatians 4, as Paul's thinking about this and meditating on the life of Abraham, he's talking about how there's a fulfillment that comes through the life of Abraham. And he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, to buy them back because none of us could meet the standard of God's law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then what? An heir. An heir through God. You and I have inherited grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ that He has bought us by that blood and through His Holy Spirit awakened us to that truth and called us into a saving relationship. Jesus died so that we could obtain the inheritance of faith in God. Scripture says this in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're all due to receive God's punishment. We're all due to receive God's wrath. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, okay, this is the connection point there. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The only reason that you and I can be children of faith is because God expanded mightily His definition of the kingdom of God and the children of God and invited us who are Gentiles into a saving relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We inherit this because of the work of Jesus Christ, which means that we have all become heirs of God's promises through trusting Jesus. We become, like Abraham, children of faith. In fact, Scripture goes on to say this, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're like Isaac. You're like Jacob. You're like Moses. You're like all of those people down the long string of the people of faith. You've inherited this reality. You've become heirs according to the promise of God. Now, what if I told you this? If I told you you inherited a cherry red 1969 Corvette Stingray, Paige, would you be happy with that? Maggie's like, yes, you know. Right? I mean, that might be a good thing. And, and you could try to cherish that all of your life. But here's something I can guarantee. The rubber on that car will wear out. And the metal on that car will rust. You could put it in a museum like the fancy auto museum out here and try and delay that reality, but eventually the parts on that car are going to break down. Because we live in a world of decay, Right? But what if I told you you can, by God's grace, receive an inheritance that only gets better and can never be taken away from you? See, that's the promise of the gospel. 
Something better is coming. Abraham understood. Isaac understood. Jacob understood. The material blessings were temporary. Even the land was temporary. Even the promise of their children was temporary. They would all die. But there was a promise of something that was lasting that would continue forever. That there was an inheritance that would never go away. Peter talks about this. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, we've not been entitled to this, He has caused us to be born again, given new hearts, new life, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to something, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that inheritance will never die. Undefiled, it's not tainted by the brokenness and sin of this world. It's unfading. It never gets worse. It only gets better. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What I'm trying to say to you, brothers and sisters, is this. You've inherited the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the work of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have been called to be God's children. And there will be an inheritance that God has prepared for you that far surpasses any glory or any goodness of this world. Now, if you believe that, Here's the key set of questions that you and I have to answer. What will we choose to do with it? And will we be responsible? Now, some people die without a will in place. <laughs> they don't make a plan. Uh, what happens when that occurs? See, somebody has to step in. The state will send it over to probate, right? where some judge or arbiter will make a decision about the dispersal of your assets based on what seems reasonable to the common good of society. And there's rules and laws that attribute that. Isn't that a waste? So many Christians die just like that. I'm not talking about materially. I'm talking about spiritually. They never made a plan for what to do with the gospel that indwelt them. They never took responsibility to distribute it. My grandfather, who grew up uh, as a little boy whose father had died early in the, the earliest round of the Great Depression, and he came up as a small child growing up in the Depression, uh, by the time he was nine years old, he was hauling ice blocks down the street as a little nine-year-old boy to try and provide money for his mother and his siblings. That man would go on to earn a master's degree and become a superintendent of schools and would found and pastor seven churches. As my grandma said, because my grandfather would go on to be a shoeshine boy when he was about 10 or 11. Not many shoeshine boys did what your grandfather did. And I praise God for that. My grandfather made plans for what to do with his wealth. Before he died, he began distributing wealth to his children and to his grandchildren in incremental gifts partially to relieve the tax burden that that would be, but also to ensure that the assets were distributed in accordance with something that he wanted. He had a plan for what to do with this while he was still alive. In fact, his greater goal was to distribute as much of his assets as he could, except leaving enough money for my grandmother to live on. The plan was put in place to distribute before he died, Right? And by the way, can I just encourage you, if you have assets, spend the money on your children and your grandchildren while you're alive. Very few of them need large lump sums when you die, nor want it. 
But spiritually, we have a choice and a responsibility. What will our legacy be? Abraham invested fully in the child of the promise. Go back to the text. Go to Genesis 25.5, and what you see there is that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham pushed in all his chips, you could say, onto Isaac. Uh, he went further, though, because Scripture says that he understood Isaac was not the fulfillment of the promise. Isaac was the beginning of the promise. Isaac was simply the very beginning of the plan. In fact, God had already told him that there would be a time where his his descendants would not be in the land, but someday that they would be brought back into this land. You might remember him telling Abraham explicitly that, Abraham, your children are going to be gone for hundreds of years before they come back to take this land. Isaac isn't the apex. He's the beginning of the promise. But Abraham went all in, you could say, on Jesus. He understood that there was a greater fulfillment that was yet to come. Galatians 3.16 says this, the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Abraham understood that there was a greater fulfillment coming that could only be fulfilled in God doing something miraculous. He, he didn't know what that was going to look like, we don't know how much God revealed of his redemptive plan to Abraham, but Abraham understood that Isaac was not the fulfillment. So he, he goes all in on Isaac and he removes distractions to his legacy. Abraham had other children, right? He had Ishmael and then through Keturah, he has all of these other children. So what does he do with the children of his concubines? While he's still alive, he sends them away after giving them gifts and he sends them away from Isaac because he understands everything is going to come down through this one kid. And he doesn't want him to be corrupted or influenced. It's all about this one child. So what does this mean for you and me? What are some practical things? Uh, it means this, brothers and sisters, grow your wealth so that you can be generous but grow your spiritual wealth. Grow your spiritual wealth. Grow your knowledge, your depth, your maturity, your experience. That you can pass on to your children, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says this, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Redeemer is committed to the reality that every believer is supposed to grow up. We don't think you should stay spiritual toddlers. We're committed to doing this not only for you as individuals, but corporately as a body of believers growing up into Jesus. We need to grow up and grow our spiritual wealth. You can't give people what you don't have. Does that make sense? You've got to invest in your own spiritual reality if you want to see your ability to give this to other people come to fruition. And then there's things you can invest in, things you can give as your spiritual legacy. Invest in the eternal kingdom of God. Yes, do this materially, but do it also with your life. Abraham did. Abraham, uh, look at Hebrews 11.10. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is how we know that Abraham wasn't thinking about things that are just material or about what was going to happen with Isaac. Scripture tells us that Abraham was looking for something bigger and better. And then he goes on to say in verse 16 that as it is, Abraham's offspring desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Is that true of you? Are you wanting something better than what this earth has? You know, one of the benefit of pain and difficulty and trials is that it changes your taste for the things of this earth. I was talking to my parents this week on the phone, and I just said, you know, 
as I recounted some things that are happening in our lives, I said, I'm getting tired of this world. I'm longing for something that doesn't fade, something that doesn't decay. Brothers and sisters, are you investing in that which will never decay or get tarnished? Are you desiring a better country? The people of whom God is not ashamed, they're the ones that are looking to the city that He has prepared. So invest in that eternal kingdom. Invest in the salvation of other people. Folks, it doesn't matter how much money you leave your grandkids if they all go to hell. Do you hear me? If they are damned to hell, it does not matter how much money you give them. You can spend hours with attorneys preparing a vast financial outlay. You can spend all kinds of time planning with your kids what they're going to do with your stuff and your antique collection and all your junk that you've accumulated on this earth. But folks, if they go to hell, it don't matter one little bit. I want to speak to you so plainly because I fear that there is a great temptation to buy into this idea that your spirituality is something you're supposed to keep private. That you don't want to talk to your kids about it because it'll make them upset. That you want to talk to your grandkids about it. Let me ask you just very simply, are you trading their eternal location for 15 minutes of peace over Christmas dinner. Do you see how foolish that trade is? And I do not mean this simply for your biological children or your biological grandchildren. I mean this for the people of the next generation in the world in which there is. We are facing a crisis in churches across the United States that invested in the spiritual comfort of one generation of people to the absolute detriment of the entire next three or five generations. We will never recover barring a grand miracle and revival of God from the foolish squandering of our faith by the evangelicals who came before us and who are even now alive. I spend hours every week with churches that are trying to recognize the reality that right now they have wasted their spiritual lives. And they did not invest in that which was eternal. Invest in the salvation of others. Jesus has made it so clear. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Here in Mark, he says, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Invest in the salvation of others. Invest in the spiritual lives of your children and your church's children. We have made a hard decision. Do you know how much time and energy and effort goes into those simple three-minute gospel presentations that you see here on Sunday morning? That's a ton of effort and time. Why would we do that? Because we believe it's important to invest in children's faith. Scripture reminds us that if we train up children in the way they should go, they will not depart from it. Now, let me be very careful here. Folks, Proverbs is not a book of fixed promises. It's a book of axioms and principles, okay? So what that means is, in general, if you raise up a child in faith and surround them with the good news of the gospel and they hear it over and over again, there is a far greater propensity for that child to believe the good news of Jesus and to be changed and saved by it. I am a spiritual heir of a group of people that were committed to this. You, you may be saying, well, I'm a single lady or I'm a widow and, and what do I have to invest? This week, uh, Merm Meisner, that's how I, we always called her Aunt Merm, died and went to be with Jesus. Miriam Meisner, a single lady all of her life, 
a trained laboratory technician who went and got a seminary degree so she could serve in Baptist hospitals around the world. She died this week over the age of 90. And at her funeral, the missionary kids of the Indonesia Baptist Mission appointed a representative to stand up and speak and speak of her spiritual mothering to an entire generation. That's a legacy. That's a legacy. Merm understood what it meant to invest in eternal realities. She was not alone. Um, I, just one more illustration. She was not alone. One of her coworkers on the field was Dr. Catherine Walker, a brilliant theologian, a woman who wrote dozens of seminary textbooks, who trained up a generation of seminarians. But her biggest impact was setting up a Christian camp for missionary kids called Camp Mickey. And out of that, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of children have come to saving faith, been raised up to become missionaries and pastors and believing business people who are scattered throughout the world. The gospel impact of one single woman who was committed to the spiritual growth of the next generation who said, I have good news to pass it on. I'm going to take my years. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to take my energy. I'm going to take my life, and I'm going to invest there. Church, we've got to invest in the lives of our children. We've got to invest in the spiritual growth of those who will pass on the faith. If you're not investing in somebody, I would go so far as to say, you're disobeying the command of Jesus when he told you to go and make disciples. He didn't tell you to hoard your faith. He told you to give it away. Invest, Scripture says. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the things which you have learned from me, Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of many, many witnesses, Timothy, this gospel that you've heard, the truths and implications of the gospel, the way I've taught you scripture, Timothy, entrust those things to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, I taught you, I trained you, not so that you could have it, but so that you would multiply it to a next generation who would multiply it to a next generation. The people you should be training, Timothy, should be passing it on to other people. Invest your spiritual legacy in people who will pass on the faith. The fourth thing that we can see in this passage as we come to this conclusion is this, that only God can ensure a godly legacy. You and I can invest, but it is up to God to hold that legacy. Abraham will die. From him comes one child who will follow the faith, right? Genesis 25, 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. There's a form of spiritual blessing that comes to Isaac and to Isaac alone. Not all the other children, but to Isaac. And Isaac settles at Bir Lahai Roy. But not every child will pass on a legacy of faith. Isaac, we will see, does, but some don't. What did Ishmael pass on? Oh, we saw a list of names, didn't we? God did, in fact, bless him as he had promised Hagar that from her would come 12 princes, right? But the legacy that was passed on was envy and bitterness and conflict, even though they had been blessed. You see, you can be blessed and pass on those things. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. God blesses even Abraham's mistakes. But what's the outcome? They settle from Havilah to Shur. They get a big piece of land while Abraham's children are wandering in the land. But then notice verse 18 there at the very bottom. He, Ishmael, which is interesting because he's dead, 
but it's his children, the tribe of Ishmael, settled over against all his kinsmen. Now, that's an odd phrase, right? To settle over against something. But you might want to remember this. What had God prophesied to Hagar? He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Isaac would leave a legacy of faith to Jacob. Jacob would leave a legacy of faith to the 12 tribes. Ishmael will leave a legacy of conflict and division. He will spend his life fighting against the children of faith. Does that disturb you? Brothers and sisters, can I tell you, there are many people who profess Christ, who attend churches, and when they leave, they leave a legacy of bitterness and envy and conflict. Don't be them. Please. It's a waste. Be the people who leave a legacy of God's love and grace and mercy and peace and gospel hope and faith. Some people will pass on a life of faith and grace, but not all. The next time we see Isaac, what do we see him doing? Living there at the place where you hear the voice of God, Bir Lahai Roy, and Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Isaac understands what it means to have a relationship with God, and he cries out for the next generation of blessing because he understood he was an heir to a promise that he had to pass on. And he cries out, and God grants his, his prayer. And Rebecca, his wife, can see, we're going to stop this series right now. We're not going to continue farther into the series in the Genesis. We'll come back to it later. We've, we've divided the book up into three big chunks, and this is the second big chunk. But what I want you to see is that Abraham succeeded in passing on a life of faith to his son, Isaac. And Isaac will pass that on to Jacob. And Jacob will pass that on to his children. God alone, brothers and sisters, can bring about a lasting godly legacy. I can't make my children be saved. I can't make my grandchildren be saved. I can't give them a new heart. I can't, I can't make them new and alive when they're spiritually dead. Only God can do that. But I can tell them the good news. And I can live out the reality of that good news. I said this earlier during our prayer time. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchmen keep watch in vain. Only God can preserve a spiritual legacy, and only God can build a spiritual legacy. But you and I, you and I can share a legacy. Can I just share with you three closing thoughts about things that only Jesus can do? Only Jesus can truly satisfy the longing souls of the descendants that we have. I can't fill my daughter's deepest longings. I can't, hopefully when I have grandchildren someday, ensure that their greatest desire of their heart is the good news of Jesus. Only Jesus can satisfy them. That means I tell them and I point to them and say to them that their money, their careers, their, their work, everything, it will never satisfy them. I can say to them with truth, nothing on this earth is going to satisfy your soul except Jesus. I can tell them not to waste their lives on other things. 
Because Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There is nothing in this world that can fulfill that promise except Jesus. Only Jesus can truly satisfy the longing soul of our descendants, and only Jesus can draw them to himself. That means you and I can pray for that. We can work to that end. Jesus has promised, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you pray for God's working like that in the lives of your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren? Do you pray for, for that in the lives? When, when the children's message is happening up here, do you pray that way for Jonah and Bella? And do you pray? Oh, God! Awaken these children to the gospel because if they don't get it here, where are they going to get it, folks? Do you pray that out in the world? Pray that for your family. Pray that for your friends. Only He can draw them to Himself. And then here's the third thing that only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can grant saving faith and eternal life. That should not lead us to passivity. It should lead us to great hope. Listen, if Jesus can save me, I have every reason to believe he can save my children. If Jesus can save me, I have every reason to believe that he can and will save the children that he brings into this church. If Jesus can save me, then I can believe that and therefore act to tell them the good news. To live it out in reality. Jesus says this, John chapter 6, verse 40, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. Oh, what wonderful good news we have. The greatest legacy you and I have is this gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have a choice. Are we going to live within that reality and give it away deliberately, strategically, intentionally, and with great effort and hard work? Are we going to squander the thing that we are supposed to pass on? What will be our legacy? Someday, if Jesus tarries... Redeemer Baptist Church will not be. No church lasts. What will our legacy be when we are gone? One of the things I think some people don't understand about our church is that everything is built essentially with that premise in mind. Years ago, Pastor Varnum asked me, what happens if we fail? We were going to try some crazy stuff, and this church has tried some crazy stuff. I said, we have to decide what failure means. If by that you mean that we preserve some form of an organization... Well, we could keep the organization and still fail. If we risk it all, throwing everything at the salvation of one person or five, the discipleship of five or ten, and they pass on the faith, have we failed? Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us that kind of a heart. Oh, Father, awaken us to the truth, the power, the majesty of the gospel. Let us see it as our greatest treasure and let us see it as that which we have the joy and privilege of stewarding and passing on. Keep us from sharing a legacy of, of bitterness and envy and conflict and bring us to a place where our legacy will be that we see our children rise up and proclaim your name and rejoice in you and find you to be our greatest hope. Not only our physical children, but our spiritual children. I pray that you raise up spiritual mothers and fathers and grandfathers in this congregation today. I pray that you bring us all to a renewed commitment to take all that we have and throw 
throw everything. We, we go all in. We push all our chips in on your son Jesus, on the hope of the good news. And we say, here, here we stand. Everything that we have belongs to you for your kingdom. And we pray, God, that you would awaken us to renewed spiritual realities. Oh, God, would you grant us that grace today? We pray for our children, for the children across this community, the children that come here and are in this room and in this school every day. We pray for the adults of this community that they would know the good news of your son, Jesus. Oh, God, awaken us to this truth. Draw people to yourself by your grace and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.